Well, thanks again for being here this morning. Uh, I want to start with a thought about strengths. When's the last time you felt like you had done something successful with one of your strengths, right? Like, so strengths are things that you use and they help you feel strong. So if you are really good at teaching, maybe you can think of the last time you did a great lesson. If you are a physician, maybe it was the last time you sort of wound your way through a really complicated case and then you arrived at a solution that was so helpful for your patient, for your team. Uh, If you're a parent, uh, successes are sometimes very hard to come by, but they do come. Uh, Earlier this week, uh, I was joking around with my son. You know, it's me and him and my wife and our two daughters. And so we have, you know, the guy team and the girls team, right? Like, this is just a normal division of labor. And uh, sometimes Will and I will joke around and I'll say to him, hey, buddy, let's go do something. Just the guys. No girls allowed, right? Like, we're just going to get in the car together and we'll, you know, go get ice cream or go do something. And so that's kind of like a fun little thing that we do together sometimes. And so this week, Will came up to me and said, hey, Dad, can we go do something together? Just the guys, no girls allowed. Like he said it back to me. So I felt like that was like a fun kind of moment of success as a parent. How about failure? Sometimes we love to talk about our strengths. We love to talk about our successes, but we are so less inclined to talk about our failures. I'll share one of mine in a little while. But when's the last time you felt like you just blew it? right? Like you just, whatever you were trying to do, it just barked like a dog. It did not work. When is the last time that happened to you? Today, we're going to look at a moment in the life of the disciples of Jesus and of Jesus himself, where there are huge moments of success and huge moments of failure. And as we continue in our sermon series this week, we're talking about encounters with Christ. And the subtext for this series, if you're just joining us, is whenever we have an encounter with Christ, we see the kingdom. Whenever we look at Jesus, we see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is what Jesus says, what he told us last week in Luke 4. I came to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. What is that? It is the rule and reign of God, the range of God's effective will, where what he wants done is done. And one of our premises in this series is every one of us has our own little kingdom or multiple kingdoms or queendoms, if you will, where you can affect your will on others. So this may be your work. This may be school if you're a student. If you're a parent, you sure as heck are trying to affect your will and those little people that live with you. It is the range of your effective will where what you want done is done. And one of the things we're trying to get at is that when we experience our kingdoms integrating into God's kingdom and we submit and surrender our kingdom to the kingdom of God, things work. That is where we are supposed to be, where God has designed us to be. So today we're going to actually look at a moment where one of the disciples has the opportunity to submit his little kingdom, which happens to be about fish, into the kingdom of God. And so our thesis for this morning is about fish. The thesis goes like this. It's not about fish. If you want to write that down, write it down. It's not about fish. Can you say it with me? It's not about fish. And we'll get into that in just a minute. We're going to look at this through three different headings, and they're outlined in your bulletin. A moment of failure a moment of abundance, and a moment of making some new goals. Failure, abundance, and making new goals. Those are all there in your bulletin. And we're going to spend the majority of our time in Luke chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, if you want to open up your Bible app, I'd encourage you to do that. Let's begin by talking about failure. This is illustrated in kind of verses 1 through 5. It's the setup to the story that Maddie just read for us. And I want us to kind of put ourselves in the story for just a minute. And I know it's summer, so we all love going to the beach. So picture the last time you are at the beach. Maybe you went out to the coast and you went to that beach. Maybe you just went down the hill to Marina Park. Maybe you went to Denny or Juanita Beach, one of the great beaches that we have around here. Maybe it was over in Seattle. And just picture yourself 
at that beach. It's mid-morning, right? So maybe like right around now, 10, 10.30. Uh, if you're like me, that's time for your second or third cup of coffee. And you're looking out on the water. It's just a beautiful day, right? The air temperature is perfect. You're just taking it in. And you look to the side and you see a group of guys and they just look tired. Like they kind of look like a little beat up. They're wearing work clothes. They're kind of scraggly. They're a little dirty. They've got these big sort of algae covered pieces of fabric. And you're going, what in the world is this? And you start to put two and two together. You see their boats sort of moored out there. And you realize, oh, these are fishermen. They're coming in from the morning catch. If you know anything about fishing, you know the best time to try to go fishing usually is twilight, kind of when the sun's starting to go down, or early morning before the water gets warm. But these fishermen that you're seeing in this little scenario, it's mid-morning, but you don't see any fish. You don't, there, there's no sort of uh, result from their going out there. And they're kind of grumbling. They're kind of restless. They're tired. We've all done this, right? You've put in a hard day's work. You've been parenting. You've been trying to get something done at the office. And you come up to 4.35 o'clock and you're going, I'm just done. Like, let me go home and be finished with this day. That's what's happening in our passage right now. Is when Jesus encounters these fishermen, they are done. And they are not happy about being done because they had a fruitless day. One commentator brought up this historical note that these fishermen, because of where they fished, they may have been responsible for catching a type of fish that was really, really valuable, like a delicacy fish, like so valuable that they would have had maybe a cart or a boat waiting there to try to take these fish to market in Rome. These would have been high-dollar items. They have some very important clients waiting for them to produce for them. Can anybody relate? Now, if we put ourselves in their shoes, we're usually really glad that whenever we fail, a lot of the time, there's not an audience, right? Isn't it worse that when you fail, when there's an audience, when there's someone sort of having a window into your failure? It can be a little embarrassing, right? My beloved baseball team, the Houston Astros, a couple seasons ago, finished the season on a 15-game losing streak. They spent more than two weeks, almost half a month, losing continually to finish the six-month baseball season. Do you think those guys were embarrassed? Losing 15 games in a row in front of audiences of not many people, but thousands of people in their stadium? Don't you think they were embarrassed? If our performance is so bad, it feels a little better if nobody saw it, but if people saw it, it feels worse. There are crowds following Jesus around. The crowds follow Jesus around the bend. The fishermen are there too. And all of a sudden, oh look, the fishermen have an audience for their failure. How does that feel? Not great. And the last time I had a major failure, I had an audience in front of me that I cared a lot about. Uh, Some of you know that at Bethany, we're kind of a member of a bigger family. There's multiple Bethany churches around the city. And our staff will get together sometimes, and we'll do trainings, we'll kind of help each other grow. And so I had the opportunity to teach one of these trainings a couple months ago. It was a privilege. I was really enjoying the prep for it. And then I get up there and I start teaching on one of our core values. And I'm just realizing as I'm teaching, like, this is not working. Like, this, I I put in a lot of work, and I tried to do this lesson plan, and this is not flying. Like, something's not going right here. And that was, you know, tough in and of itself, right? Because, like, this is what I do, and I didn't do what I do very well. But what made it even more painful was the audience. Because these are my colleagues. Like, this is my team. These are people that I really want to use their time well. And at the end of that lesson, I thought, I probably wasted their time. Like, they probably could have been doing much, much better things. 
Sometimes it's the audience of our failures that gives us the most heartburn. So Jesus is with this crowd, or rather the crowd is following him. He sees the fisherman, comes up to one of them, a guy named Simon, Simon Peter. We'll call him Peter. And he says to Peter, hey, let me borrow your boat. And he gets out in the prow of the boat. They push out a little bit into the water. For a moment, the failure is somewhat forgotten. Like there's no sort of where are your fish questions because Jesus has taken over. He does some teaching. And then at the end of his teaching, he turns to Simon and he says, hey, nice boat. Why don't you go back out there? Why don't you go try again? Now think about this. If you're Simon, you're going, okay, like I just tried that. I know every inch of this lake. Like these guys probably grew up around this lake. They knew all the good fishing spots. They knew where to be. And yet, listen to what Simon's response is. This is so fascinating. It's an honest response. It's none of this, well, Jesus, you know, mistakes were made and we didn't get the job done. Here's what he says to Jesus. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. He, he owns his failure. He says right there in front of all the crowds, yep, we didn't get it done. And then he says this, yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. He's honest, and he's referring to Jesus by a really interesting term, master. That word master only occurs seven times in the whole New Testament, and it all happens in the Gospel of Luke. This is one of Luke's words for referring to Jesus. And you know what it means? It means someone who stands by. Someone who is right next to you in the midst of success, in the midst of failure. It is someone who is present with you. It's a term of respect. But if you look at the other uses of this term master in Luke's gospel, it's used both in respectful circumstances and in circumstances of love and dependency. In the text that we'll talk about next week where they're in the middle of the boat and there's a storm and the disciples say, Master, we're perishing, that's that same word. You're with us. We want to be with you. Who stands by you when you fail? Who's with you when you walk through failure? Who's the audience, but then who's the person that you can sort of let it all hang out with and just say, yep, I really blew it there. We all need someone to be with us in our failures. Uh, I was uh, doing one of my favorite things the other night where I fold laundry and watch a movie. And I watched uh, the last Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi. And I know it was kind of controversial. A lot of people didn't like it. I loved it. And I loved it because it's a movie about failure. If you've seen the movie, and if, if you haven't, I'll try to catch it up for you. This is a, a story about the hero from the previous Star Wars movies, Luke Skywalker, and he's banished himself to this distant corner of the galaxy. He is out. He does not want to be a part of what's going on anymore because he believes he's failed. And in a sense, he failed catastrophically. He tried to kind of build out the Jedi again and kind of do all these great things, and there was a failure, and so he leaves the scene. He doesn't want to come back. He has quit the battle. And guess who comes to stand beside him in the midst of his failure? Our dear friend Yoda. Master Yoda shows up and he talks to Luke. He doesn't give him a pep talk. If you've seen the movie, this is like kind of a brutal pep talk. He slaps him around a little bit. And then he delivers this great line because Luke says, you know, I failed. I don't want to be stepping back into this battle. I don't belong there. And Master Yoda says, the greatest teacher failure is. In Yoda's own way, right? The greatest teacher failure is. Have you tried to look at failure as your teacher? The last time you failed, the last time something barked like a dog, did you think to yourself, I can learn from this? I don't, usually. <laughs> I'm not of that presence of mind. When I failed in my lesson with the Bethany staff, you know what my first thought was? 
I'm just not cut out for this. That's a leap. <laughs> like, I'm making quite a jump there, right? But we do that. We don't go, how can I learn from this? We don't go, the greatest teacher of failure is. We go, how can I get away from this? The next time you fail and you're tempted to beat yourself up, what if you were to ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you want me to learn? How can I grow from this? I have a mentor who really encourages me to think, in the midst of failure, in the midst of something that I don't like, in the midst of suffering, can I thank God? Can I praise God and say, I'm praising you in advance of the good work I know you're going to do through this moment. I'm not good at that yet, you guys, but I think that's a really good goal to strive for. When you fail, who is with you? And have you tried to look at failure as your teacher? This is where Simon's moment changes because he's actually in an opportunity where he can connect his work to the kingdom of God. Simon has tried to use his own will. Remember, a kingdom is where you can use your will, where you can make stuff happen. He's tried to use his own will to do what? To catch fish. But what have we learned? It's not about the fish. He can't will the fish into the net, but Jesus can. As we'll see in a moment, this abundance is more than just a big pile of fish. But Jesus gets the win in this moment because he shows Simon that when we come to the end of ourselves is when we can really surrender to him. When we come to the end of our capabilities, the end of our expertise, I can't type another key, I can't write another program, I can't do this, I can't do that, we will be in the best possible position to step into God's kingdom. And to say, all right, Lord, you do it. I can't. You must do this in and through me. Don't, a pastor I admire says it this way. Don't let failure go to your heart and don't let success go to your head. Don't let failure go to your heart and don't let success go to your head. The greatest teacher of failure is, can we think about failure that way? Now let's move on to our discussion about abundance. By the way, isn't it fun to be able to talk about Yoda in church? Like, I think he and Jesus would get along really well if he wasn't a fictitious character. <clears throat> now let's keep going. I want to look at verses 6 and 7. So turn there in your Bibles with me. Luke 5, 6 and 7. They've let the nets down. They've done what Jesus said to do. And then the text tells us they caught so many fish. How many fish? So many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat, hey, get over here, come on, help us. And they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. The nets began to break, the boats began to sink. The abundance of this catch is beyond describing. And if you're this ragtag bag of, band of fishermen, what are you thinking? You're thinking, this is impossible. I've fished this lake my entire life. I didn't think there were this many fish in this entire lake ever. How did I get all of these? I have gone to all the right spots. I have made all the right moves. I have all the right equipment. I have been to Cabela's. And he just says, go over there and try again. And all of a sudden, there's this miraculous catch of fish. They're shocked. They're struck by the sheer impossibility of it all. And yet, if they were following what they were setting out to do, what would they run off and do? They would run off and get those fish to market, right? Is a fish going to get better with age? No, it's not like wine. It doesn't work that way. It's not about the fish. Say it with me. It's not about the fish. Think about it. They've pulled in this huge catch, big pile sitting there on the shore. Do we hear about the fish anymore in the story? No, because it's not about the fish. This story is not a lesson on fishing in the Middle East. 
It's not about that. When we experience the abundance of God, it's not about us going, cool, how can I stack rank all my fish and how can I make sure I get this fish to market at the right time? How can I get this over here? How can I make sure I'm, no. Because when we focus on the abundance, we miss the source. That's the point of this part of the text. Abundance is always about us going to the source, which is Jesus Christ. Romans 14, 17 says this, For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Your kingdom, my kingdom, is not about the fish. It's not about abundance. It's not about writing the next program or developing the next app. It is about that, but it can't be just about that. Because our kingdoms are meant to integrate into God's kingdom. That's where we'll experience and joy and the comfort of the Holy for us, but for all people. It's not about the fish. What does this look like in real life? Some of you are familiar with the work of a man named Brian Stevenson. He's an attorney, and he founded a nonprofit called Equal Justice Initiative. And Brian wrote a great book called Just Mercy, which uh, as a staff, we're reading together. Uh, Brian uh, did not come from abundance. He grew up in kind of urban Pennsylvania. He went off to law school, though, at Harvard, one of the most prestigious institutions in our country. And he goes there. He's a young, talented man, great minds, great teaching, huge opportunities are bound to come his way, right? You go to a place like Harvard, you're going to go make six figures. You're going to work for one of the big firms. It's going to be awesome. Instead, two things happened to Brian. One thing was that he sat next to a guy on a plane who was also an attorney, and this guy started talking to him about the challenges facing the death penalty and capital punishment around the United States. And I'm not trying to make a political statement here. This is just a man sitting next to another man saying, look, I don't know how much you know about capital punishment or about the inequalities and injustices within our justice system, but here's the real deal. And they start talking about this, and they start talking about overly severe punishment for young people and kids as young as 12 and 13 being sent away to jail for the rest of their lives. And Brian's drawn into this conversation, and he's a Christ follower, so he already has a soft heart for this kind of thing, but he's just, he's never thought about it before. He's never thought about his life connecting to that kind of work before. Then, as one of his internships in law school, he's actually sent out to death row. I have never been to death row. I can't even imagine what it's like to go to death row. And he is sent out there just to sit and talk with a client that's been contacted by this nonprofit that he was working for. And he finds, as he sits there and talks with this man, that this is just a man. And he's done some terrible crimes, but he is waiting and waiting and waiting in this kind of purgatory. And his heart breaks. And he goes back to Harvard Law School, and he's not interested in the fish anymore. Do you know what I mean? He's not interested in the six figures and the brass nameplate and all the other stuff that was guaranteed to come his way by graduating from Harvard Law School. Instead, he wants to go to the source. He wants to go back to this mission that God is putting in front of him, that is unfolding for him, for him to go do the work of the kingdom beyond what he thought he could do. You can do the work of the kingdom at those six-figure law firms, but he's got a different calling. And this is an example of how each of us can take the abundance that's been offered to us, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a physician, whether you're working as a nurse, whatever your role may be, you have been offered an incredible abundance. And yet, at our peril, we focus on the fish. We focus on the pile of stuff that we could have. And instead, when we look at the source, when we go into what God really wants for us, when he's tugging us in a direction, and like Brian, we pay attention to that direction, then we see our kingdom come to the place where it needs to be. Then we see our will surrendered to where God desires for it to be. 
And you can do this in some really, really simple ways. If you're looking for a practical step to take this week, let me offer you this encouragement. If you're on a great team at work, if you've got great people around you, if you are really, really doing well, people are coming up to you and saying, man, that last project was great, and you did so good over here, and I'm so proud of you for doing this. You know what's great to be able to say in that moment, and this points toward the kingdom? I'm really thankful to be on a great team because it's not about the abundance. I am thankful to be on a great team. It's not about the money you're making. It's not about all this other stuff. I'm thankful to be on a great team. Maybe in your personal life, you've had a great run lately. You just did some really cool trips. You went rock climbing. You did all this amazing stuff. Someone says to you, man, you're just living the life. Like, this is great, right? And I've done this, and this is really an interesting entry point in a conversation with people who might be far from God. When someone says to you, like, wow, you just, you've got it going on. Like, good for you. You know what you can say that steps people into the kingdom? Yeah, it's a gift. My life is a gift. I've been given everything that I get to enjoy. We were on vacation one time, and we actually, Jill actually said this to someone sitting next to us in an ice cream parlor. We were talking about just, it was a beautiful summer night, and we were eating ice cream, we were in the mountains, and Jill said, yep, it's a gift. And the guy sitting next to us noticed, and we started talking, we had this great spiritual conversation. It can happen, you guys. Just with the turn of the phrase, just with a little thing like that, it's a gift. I'm so thankful to be on a great team. Those are moments to point toward the kingdom. Can you do that this week? You can absolutely do that this week. So we've talked about abundance. We've talked about failure. Now we need to talk about new goals. What's our thesis statement? It's not about the fish. Say it with me again. It's not about the fish, Bethany. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and joy in the spirit. It's about a new set of goals and the kind of transformation that only comes when we seek Jesus Christ. Now Peter experiences this text. So listen to this with me. This is Luke 5, and I'll read verses 8 through 11. And this is Peter's reaction to the fish, but it's about more than the fish. When Simon Peter saw the fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Simon Peter, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. And when they brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. It's not about the fish. This is about transformation. And transformation implies that we are at point A and we need to get to point B. And the Christian life, and I love being a part of the Bethany family of churches, because this is something that I think we've tried to get at over and over again in our hundred-year ministry to the city. Transformation is about who God wants you and I to become. Who does God want you and I to become? This is not about behavior modification. This is not about clean up your language, young man, young lady. This is about who does God want you to become? And this is something that I think God has gifted Bethany to proclaim uniquely well in our city throughout the last hundred years. Transformation is about who God wants you and I to become. So look at Peter as an example. In Peter's case, something amazing has happened to him, point A, Jesus' power has broken in. He has shown his influence over the kingdom. He's brought more fish than he can handle. And point B could have been, let's get to Rome as fast as we can. Let's sell this stuff. Let's get it out. But that's not what Jesus has moved him toward. What Jesus has moved him toward is to come and be with him. And actually, to be with him by first confessing, 
by pouring out part of his pride and maybe some of his ego to make that much more room in his heart for Jesus' transforming power. The message translation puts uh, Peter's words this way. Master, leave. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? Leave. Get away from me. I'm a sinner and I can't handle this holiness. Leave me to myself. The text goes on to say that Peter says this because he's in awe of the catch of fish, of the power of Jesus, of the magnitude of what's just happened. And this isn't the only time that this happens in the Bible. The apostle Paul comes to faith because he's knocked off his horse. And then later in life, he says, Christ Jesus shows mercy to sinners. He came to rescue sinners of whom I am the worst. He is in awe of God's power at being able to reach someone like him. David says something like this in 2 Samuel 12, when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan, he says, I'm the sinner, I'm the guy, I I confess, I cheated. This happens over and over again in the scriptures, and the point that I'm trying to make is, sometimes awe will shock us awake. Sometimes when we're in awe of something good or bad, it will shock us into a place where we want to be transformed. This is what happens to Simon. He sees the fish, but it's not about the fish, and he wakes up to his new calling. Sometimes it's awe of bad things, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is so terrible, that will wake us up. I've been listening to a podcast lately about the Watergate scandal, which is just fascinating. And it kind of takes a deep dive into the lives of some of the more minor figures in the scandal. One of them, not a minor figure, but someone that was talked about in the podcast, was the former lawyer to President Nixon, John Dean. And some of you uh, were around during this. I can't imagine being around when all this was going down. But as the Watergate Special Commission came together to investigate the crimes against the president, or the crimes committed by the committee to reelect the president, John Dean came forward as the star witness. This guy knew the president intimately. He'd been in the room when some terrible decisions were made. And so at first he says, yeah, I'll tell you guys everything. I'll tell you everything I know. I'm going to be your star witness. And what's so interesting about that is, is historians are divided about why John Dean decided to flip on the president. They don't really know. He was offered, he tried to get immunity from the feds. That would have been the easiest route to say like, yeah, of course, I'll flip. And the feds wouldn't do it. So that can't be it. Some people, I think this is a cynical view, say that he wanted to flip on the president because he knew he could make a lot of money writing his memoirs someday. Dean himself, in an interview, claimed that it was a sense of duty to the American people. Like, hey, I'm an American citizen. I can't be involved with this anymore. And I don't know the guy, but I'm just going to speculate for a little bit that he felt the awe, the bad awe, of being involved with something as pernicious and widespread as the Watergate scandal. He felt so in awe of how bad things had gone that he felt this conviction that his mission, his goal needed to change. This is where we get into new goals. His goal at the beginning of the whole Watergate thing, like everybody else involved with it was, re-elect the president. This was all from the committee to re-elect the president. That was their original goal. John Dean, at some point in this process, decided that his confession was so important that he needed a new goal. And the new goal was to make this right. It's to make this right. And to get there first, he had to confess. And so, as we finish up our time together in just a moment, we're going to practice this together. We're going to practice one of the ancient Christian disciplines of confession. And you may not have come in here thinking that today would be a time for you to confess, for you to try to lay things out before God. We're not going to write them down. We're not going to take them to one another. We're just going to take them straight to the Lord. And we're going to do so through prayer. 
Because I believe, and I think the text is pointing us toward this, that in confession, there's a bit of us that's opened up that much more to the transformative power of Christ being poured into our lives. And we see that in Simon Peter, and we can see that in each of our lives, and we're going to step into that in just a moment. And the reason we're doing that is because there's a second new goal. There's the new goal of being new people, of being, of being able to embrace uh, our brokenness through confession. And then there's the goal that Jesus gives at the very end of today's passage. He says, do not be afraid, for from now on you'll be catching people. What does that mean? If we go ahead just one page to Luke 6, verse 20, Jesus has rounded up the disciples, he's got them all together, and then he begins his Sermon on the Mount by saying this. The text says this, he looked at his disciples And he said to them, this is Luke 6.20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you, Simon, who are so broken, you don't want anything to do with me, but you know it. And you're willing to stay with me. You're willing to confess. You're willing to hear what I have to say to you in your heart. Bethany, we are the poor. (laughs) It may not seem like that in our checkbooks. It may not feel like that all the time. But we are those who come to Christ and say, I'm poor. What can you use me for? I feel that way so often. And I so I wonder at times, like, okay, God, how could you use someone poor and broken like me? How could you use someone who can't keep track of things and forget stuff, and I'm kind of all over the map, and if it takes me a week to respond to emails, that's just how it is. But I'm at my best when I remember it's not about the fish. It's not about me. It's not about how good and how capable I am. And this is why I love teaching about the kingdom. Because for me, the kingdom is the way that I can be free as a leader. It's not about the fish. You and I are called to drop, at times, our greatest successes, the big pile of fish, the promotion, the huge thing, so that we can be with Jesus and step into his kingdom. And this happened for me when we moved here, almost three years ago. We left Colorado. Some of you have heard this story before. And we left Colorado where I'd been a pastor at another church and I came here feeling as successful as I've ever felt in my entire career. I felt like I was on top of the world. I had come from a great run. I'd been a part of a great team. We'd done great work at this church in Colorado. It was an awesome season in ministry. And I came to Bethany and it was a totally disorienting and jarring experience. And I'm not saying this to knock on anybody. I'm just saying the new challenge humbled me very quickly. And I very quickly looked at that big old pile of fish that I had from my time in Colorado, and I went, oh man, it is not about the fish. It is about what God is doing here through us, through this mobile church, but put in the middle of Kirkland for God's purposes, where people are growing deep in their love for one another in small groups, where we're stepping into things courageously, like trying to bless and serve an under-resourced school on August 26th where we are positioning ourselves better and better to be people who don't just come to church, but who go forth and we are the church in our community and in our world, where we are the type of people who point toward the kingdom in our work. And God is calling you and I to do that this week. And there's a way for you to do that at Microsoft and at Google and in all the places that you go to work. And so how will that look for you this week? How will it look for you to look at a giant pile of fish, whatever the biggest success you could have at work, and go, you know what? That's great. But God has called me to proclaim the kingdom. And I got to do that in ways that make sense to the people around me. I'll finish with this uh, encouragement. This is a quote from one of my favorite authors, a man named Frederick Beekner. He was a, a writer and a pastor on the East Coast for many years. 
And Beekner compares the kingdom of God to a rainbow in the sky after it rains. Listen to this. Sometimes while it's still raining, the sun comes out from behind the clouds and suddenly arcing across the gray sky, there's a rainbow, which people stop doing whatever they're doing and they look at it. They lay down their fishing nets, their tax forms, their bridge hands, their golf clubs, their newspapers, and they gaze up at the sky because what is happening up there is so marvelous they can't help themselves. That is how Christ calls us. We marvel at him, arcing across the grayness of things, the grayness of our own lives or of life itself, and we hear his voice calling our name, and we go and we step into the kingdom. Friends, pointing toward the kingdom of God with your life, with my life, is as simple as stopping to look up at a rainbow after the rain. How would God have you do that this week? I'm going to invite uh, the band to come join me up here, and then Josh is going to head back to our couches where he'll be ready to pray with people. And as we take a moment and kind of collect ourselves and think about the kingdom together, we're going to kind of stand in awe of God's power. And we're going to make room for that awe through confession. So again, this is going to be something where you're not going to write anything down. You're not going to have to share anything real deeply except with God. And we're going to use some words up on the screen together, a prayer that was written uh, actually by another church that I just found to be really, really helpful this week. So I invite you to uh, put everything down that's in your hands, put aside your Bible or your notebook or your phone. And as these words come up on the screen, I'll read them out loud, but please say them with me if you'd like to. And we will be silent after we say these words so that we can say to God what's in our hearts so that he can speak to us. And in a moment, I'll offer a closing uh, portion of our prayer here. And then we'll join our hearts together again in worship. Let's pray this prayer together. Say it with me if you'd like. Almighty God, you have told us to trust you with all of our hearts. You have encouraged us to lean on you rather than depend upon our own understanding. You invite us to be still and know that you are God. You desire us to commit our moments, our days, our plans, and our lives to you. However, we often prefer independence. We are a self-sufficient people, impatient and fearful of losing control. We confess our frequent failure to trust you. Help our unbelief. By the cross of Christ, enable us to die to sin so we may be raised to new life in Jesus. By your Holy Spirit, grow our trust in you that we may live wholeheartedly for your sake and for the sake of the world which you love. Amen. Father, hear us now as we continue to pray silently. Father, in this moment from the scriptures, where Peter confesses, where he says, Lord, I'm a sinner. I don't know that I can be around you. We can see a bit of ourselves. We can see a bit of what shame and guilt can do to us to try to drive us away from you. And we know this prayer we just prayed, it's, it's words, but it's words that we pray touch and move the heart. 
And so, Lord, in your mercy and through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you touch those broken and shameful and dark places in our hearts and make them places of light and places of joy and places of freedom. We don't deserve this. We know this only comes through Jesus. So in him, through him, be our healer. May we receive your forgiveness in a new way. Thank you that your word promises us that as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our sins from us, O oh God. And you have set us free, free indeed. So as we rise in just a moment, may we rise in such a way that shows that we have received this freedom from you and we want to carry it out into the world as people who point toward the kingdom and help others look at it like a rainbow cutting across the sky. Help us to do this this day. Help us to be transformed, to be the kind of people you want us to be and go fish for men and women. We ask this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.